The Planchet is a product of the American Numismatic Society. Become a member and support this podcast. Go to numismatics.org membership. That is numismatics with an S dot O-R-G slash membership to see options and prices. Podcast, the official podcast of the American Numismatic Society. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt, and my guests today are Elena Stolyarik and John Clayberg, who collaborated on a new book to be published by the ANS in September called Scythians and Greeks on the Western Black Sea, the coinage of the kings of Scythia Minor in Dobrugia, 218-212-110 BCE. And both guests have long ties to the ANS. Elena recently retired as its collections manager after joining the ANS in 1994, and John served for 10 years as the curator of modern coins and currency. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Sure, no problem. Anytime. Um, so I guess my, my first question is, did I pronounce Scythians right? Perfect. Yeah, but, some, okay. but sometimes <laughs> I pronounce I, I, Scythians. Scythians. I don't know. It probably can be both. What's, Scythians and Scythians? It's like Celtic and yeah, Celtic, yeah, I guess. Exactly. It's, 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 it's Scythians. Uh, but in uh, in European languages, I mean, for example, in Russian, it is uh, Skifi. In this case, I, uh, I so, don't know <laughs> so, 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 so since most of the literature about the Scythians is in Russian, uh, if you if you've been reading a lot of Russian uh, literature, you would you might get to the habit of pronouncing skifi. Uh, of course, the Greeks, to the Greeks, was they were uh, skufoi. No, 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 no. no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, the, the Greeks would have pronounced the would have pronounced the kappa. Mm -hmm. And I think Herodotus says that the Scythians themselves called them the skolotoi. Uh, uh, so, uh, I hope you excuse me if I will pronounce this skifians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh! Um, this is this is great. And this and I want to talk a little bit more a little later in the podcast about your collaboration because because uh, you know, it sounds like you've got a long history and and uh, it's you know that'll be fun to explore. But but uh, before we get there, um, can you tell the audience who the who the Scythians uh, slash Scythians were? Um, what people were they, uh, and how do we know oh, about them? Yeah, this is actually a very interesting question, but. It's a lot of literature about this topic. And what I can say that Scythians, Scythians, and nomadic people of Iranian origin with, uh, who flourished in the steppes, North Pontic steppes, during the 7th, 4th century BC. Why I call this North Pontic steppes? Because Black Sea in that time uh, ancient people, ancient historical uh, called Pontus Euxinus. Actually, Greek called this Black Sea Pontus Euxinus. So sometimes it says Pontic steps or north of the Black Sea steps, where they flourish in 7th, centuries BC. John, you can probably edit something more. Yeah, the Scythians are actually quite. In a way, they're quite famous because they're because uh, they're the classic barbarians. They're the nomads. They're moving around. 
Uh, they're always on horseback. They're very powerful. Uh, Herodotus said that they, well, Thucydides, Thucydides said that they were basically irresistible because they were these uh, horse, not horse men, horse people, because women fought too, uh, who would come with their bows and would basically shoot all these bows at a Persian or a Greek army and then move away before the army could respond. So you couldn't really attack them. And uh, Thucydides says that if the Scythians were united, nobody in Europe could resist them. So if you go on the internet, you'll see that a lot of people are very interested about the Scythians because they're the classic barbarians. They're very, very exciting people, uh, a very, very exciting people for uh, things like video games, for example. Uh, and the Greeks regarded them as the classic barbarians. They are sort of the opposite of the Greeks. The Greeks are civilized, the, uh, the, uh, and they have their very, very nice, proper symposiums where they go and they drink and they talk about philosophy. Whereas the Scythians, when they get drunk, they go around and scream. And also the Scythians are regarded as very modern in a way, uh, partly because uh, some of the Scythians, they would, uh, they would have problems with their genitals because they spent so much time on horseback, so they would end up looking like women. And at that point, they would go around and they start actually living as women, according to Herodotus. So the Scythians were very modern in that Scythians were actually, trans they were actually transgender Scythians. And the other thing that's very modern about them, that makes modern people very excited about them, is that they smoke cannabis, which is literally the word in Herodotus. Herodotus said that they had sort of saunas where they had hot rocks, and the Scythians would go into the saunas, and they would bring in hemp seeds, cannabis, throw them on the hot rocks, and they would smell the cannabis vapors, and then go and have these wild cannabis uh, trips that go around screaming about that. So they were, uh, there are these ancient barbarian people, but we, but modern people read about them and say, hey, there were transgender Scythians, and there were Scythians going around smoking cannabis. So in that way, hey, the Scythians, they're just like us. <laughs> well, this, is, this is one of the most amazing things I think I've ever heard. Uh, uh, <laughs> oh my, actually, oh my gosh. actually, I, yeah, actually, yeah. I believe they will like them. And we start to study all this ancient history with John because it's amazing history, you know, and also because they communicated and were very close to ancient civilization on the north of Black Sea to the ancient Greek colonies. And all their uh, mixed, this mix of their culture, of economic connection, give wonderful examples of this culture. And uh, I believe that they give to each other a lot of things. Scythian gave something to Greek colonies, and Greek colonies gave a lot of interesting things to Scythian. We can see this from the Scythian burial complex from Kurgans. In our book, you will find some of wonderful examples of this Scythian-Greekian art. 
Well, this was, yeah, this was exactly, uh, you know, my next question was, you know, we have this wonderful people with, with uh, this amazing history. And so um, where do we learn about them? Uh, we talked about Herodotus. Um, what other literary sources might they appear in? And also, uh, what kind of archaeological evidence did they leave behind that helps, you know, define them as their own discrete Yes, you know, it's a lot of archaeological evidence, especially it starts, of course, because it's on territory of modern uh modern, partially, Russia and modern Ukraine. It's the steps of the north of Black Sea. So archaeological evidence uh, start uh, coming to the light uh, in period of Russian Empire excavations. It's amazing. Uh, and later by excavation from Soviet Union and uh, Ukrainian archaeologists, we can find this material not only in Hermitage because... Yeah, it starts first from excavation of the Russian Empire, but also in Kiev Museum of Treasury. And it's amazing material, you know, and this is wonderful, wonderful examples of these Greco-Scythian communications. John? Yeah, yeah, well, one of the things that I think people don't realize, I mean, we think about uh, ancient Greece and the Greeks, and we think of them as places like Athens and Corinth, uh, Sparta, places like that. But there were a huge number of Greek settlements, poles, all around the shores of the Black Sea. Uh, Tyrus and Obia, which were very important poles. And then on the Western Black Sea, there's Istros, uh, Thomas, and Kalatis, uh, Ankyalis. And in fact, uh, Archaeologists, Romanian archaeologists, keep on discovering new Greek poles. There are so many of them. You could—they're all dotted all around the Black Sea. There's a, a one that there's new archaeological discovery on Orgame in uh, Romania. And if you look in the older literature, it's not mentioned, but in the Black Sea conferences, it's discussed. It's discussed. So there's this huge, very intense uh, Greek settlement all around there, and the barbarians would would actually move towards the poles and they would trade. Uh, the barbarians offered grain and slaves and fish and the poles would uh, give them the fine uh, products of civilization, most notably wine, which the Scythians loved, and, but also pottery. And of course the result of that is we think of wonderful Greek um, red figure vases coming out of the soil of of, of, um, of Tuscany from Etruria, places like that. But there are wonderful Greek potteries that are found in Ukraine uh, that have been uh, come from these kurgans, these barrows where the, that the uh, Scythians were built, because there was wonderful exports of the stuff that was uh, sent from Athens and other places. And Athens exported this stuff to the Black Sea because Athens didn't have a choice. Athens had to export the stuff or it was going to, um, or it was going to starve because the Black Sea was, a, was essential for Athens to have its grain exports and its uh, grain imports. And in fact, uh, Athens uh, operated militarily in the Black Sea area. Uh, it had fortresses in there. Uh, Demosthenes' grandfather ended up 
handing over a fortress to the enemy, and he was afraid that the Athenians were going to have him executed as a result. So he ended up fleeing into the Bosporan kingdom, and he married a Scythian wife. So um, there were all the there were all the Athenians up there, and also there were Scythians in Athens because Scythian slaves were sent to Athens, and this and the Athenians imported Scythians, and they had them as their police officers in Athens. There's a very amusing section in Aristophanes where a Scythian police officer ends up at the end of a play, and he goes around and he speaks uh, Greek with what is supposed to be a Scythian accent. So with the with the, with the Scythian accent, was this going to be you know kind of like the you know lampooning you know like a southern accent or something you know in order to kind of other um, you know the, the culture speaking in the uh, in the play? Yes, yes. I mean, you have this uh, stupid barbarian whom the clever Greeks are playing. He's a but he's he's a police officer. He's an archer. They 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 were the they were the police of Athens, and uh, the. Uh, and so they so they make fun of him. What he what he seems to do, do is that he can't produce the letters phi and theta. So uh, the the word for head, kephalos, he pronounces kephalos as if it were he's, he does it with a pi rather than a, rather than phi. And uh, for the word version, parthenos, he pronounces parthenos, so with a tall rather than a theta. So it's it's an interesting uh, uh, thing because. Then it gives a clue of how Scythian might be pronounced. But unfortunately, all our records of Scythian words, we have a lot of records of Scythian words which do include the letter theta, like the name Ariapathes. And so we have a problem that if this is a Scythian, if Ariapathes is a Scythian name, how would Scythians be able to pronounce it? Since according to Aristophanes, they couldn't pronounce the letter theta. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with this ancient Scythian language, and a lot of what we know about it is, in fact, contradictory. But it was thought in the, in the, in the 19th century, it was thought it was a form of Western Iranian uh, and related to what the Avar spoke and the Alans and the modern Ossetians. Uh, Ossetia is a region which borders between the Russian Federation and... Uh, Georgia, and uh, it's thought that the Ossetian language is descended from what was Scythian, and that's an Iranian language. But a lot of what we know is, in fact, contradictory, and modern scholars, 19th century scholars thought they knew what it was. Modern scholars are now more skeptical, and we probably don't know as much as we thought we did. No, no, no. If you return back to uh, this interrelation between Scythians, Scythians, and Greek colony on the north of and west of Black Sea. It's very important to know that uh, this archaeological material, which was found near these Greek palaces, show these connections. And it's very interesting because a lot of settlement on the Greek colonies, Hora, it's what was around these Greek cities, they have this evidence and on the north and on the west. So with um, this, this brings me to, you know, really the core of the volume, because, you know, in, in the title, you, you really focus on, on Dobrugia or what would have been ancient yes. Dobrugia. And you talk about uh, Scythia Minor. Um, 
And, you know, this kind of brings us into the problems of, you know, who is leading the Scythians and when, and you're working with chronologies and, and you're basing these, uh, not just on the archeological evidence, but also on the numismatic evidence. And I'm wondering if you could explain, you know, kind of the big problem uh, that you were focusing on in this book uh, regarding the kings, you know, who are the kings and why is there a question about the order in which they reign? Well, I think one of the things one might say is that there's Scythia Magna, which are the Scythians that are sort of famous, that people know about, that are talked about in Herodotus. And then uh, later on in the Scythian history, the, the Sarmatians came in and basically defeated Scythia Magna and took over that area, which is essentially the Ukraine today. Uh, and the Scythians themselves began to flee into other areas where they then set up sort of post, post-Scythian things. So they went into Crimea, where there was uh, sort of a, a, a Scythian kingdom. They went into the area that's known as uh, the Kuban, around the Kuban uh, River. That's the Asian shore uh, uh, of the Russian Federation. And then the other place where they went was they uh, was on the west, uh, the Western Black Sea. They would cross, they crossed over the Danube, south of Danube, and into the area which is known as Dobruja. And if you look at a map, and if you look at a map of where the Danube, you see that the Danube is heading towards the Black Sea, and then there's this abrupt shift where it starts flowing north, and then a very abrupt shift to the right. And sort of this upside-down L-shaped thing, the land enclosed by that, between that and the Black Sea, is Dobruja, which is this area that is uh, divided between the modern states of Romania and Bulgaria. And what had happened was that the Scythians, under the pressure from the Sarmatians, had moved uh, southward into this area. And into this area they did, they created... A, um, a their their own kingdom, um, a, a new kingdom, and the thing is that for the Scythians we have various things of evidence. We have literary evidence, Herodotus and Thucydides. We have the archaeological evidence of the Kurgans and uh, metalwork that the Greeks made that depict the Scythians, like the wonderful gold vase from the Kurgan at Kul Oba. Uh, we have some inscriptions. Uh, but what is interesting about this is adding the uh, numismatic evidence. And people don't realize that the Scythians struck coins. Well, the truth of the matter is, most of the time they didn't. There really aren't coins from Scythia Magna. The Scythians in Scythia Magna didn't strike coins because they didn't need to. The Greeks were uh, giving them all sorts of wonderful stuff in exchange for their grain and their slaves and their fish. But it's only later on when things become under pressure and that the Scythians become more sedentary and that adopt a lot of Greek customs themselves, including coinage, that you have sort of this post-Scythian state, a Scythia minor and Dobruja, where they actually strike coins. So here, in this sort of uh, instance, uh, you have coinage. Earlier, you also had a king of Scythia Magna, Ateus, and he also struck coins. And Elena wrote an article about that that's gotten cited quite a lot, around 2000, published 
Um, so there is evidence for, there is numismatic evidence for the Scythians, but it, it's sort of a special case. It's not Scythia Magna, but it's this other kingdom, Scythia Minor, that got set up in the area that borders on Romania and Bulgaria, Dobruja. Uh, what it's interesting <clears throat> that uh, this wave from the Magna Scythia came to Minor, Scythia Minor, not in one moment. It was several waves. Uh, for example, in the end of the 5th century, you know, when Scythian population grows and also arrived new nomadic groups, not Sarmatian yet, <clears throat> they start to cross this Danube. Late, and one of the first king of this Scythia who came in uh, in the first half of the fourth century to the Brujibos Ateas, like John said, he actually left for us his coins. It's a beautiful coins with an image on obverse young Heracles, and on reverse, it was the image of horsemen wearing special, you know, not special, special for us, uh, Scythian dress. And some of them were. It was several denomination uh, of these coins, and they were start in Calatis. And it also was big, big discussion where these coins were struck and uh, how they came. But it's very interesting that it's the first time appeared name of Scythian king, which we know from sources. Uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, Philip, who recognized danger in this wave, of Scythian coming to the Brugia, Philip II, he actually killed uh, in one of battle uh, at Ateas. But uh, some of Scythians still lived in the Brugia. And, uh, you know, we have literally evidence that they live between Tome and Denisopolis. In this case, next wave who came you know, to the Brugia. They probably mixed with this population because some of Scythian became agricultural, not only nomadic, and they have close relation with Western Black Sea cities before it was Norse, albeit Tira. Now it became relation with Tomi, Istria, Denisopolis, Calatis, and uh, it was some agreement and some Barbarian protectorate, how uh, some some research called them. Yeah, well, yeah, that's the idea of Vinogradov yes, yes. and uh, Yuri Vinogradov, uh, a um, and uh, it's an it's a it's an interesting concept. Uh, it's been debated a lot, and a lot of people have questioned it. I think it has, it's, it certainly has some validity because we do have a very interesting inscription, uh, a inscription honoring Agathocles, which talks about how, from Istros, Istros. Yeah. which talks about how, the, how they had a problem with uh, a Thracian warlord mm -hmm. who kept on invading their territory and that they would then, they then tried to pay him off by giving him 600 gold pieces, but then the Thracians come <laughs> back. So then they go to Romaxos, who is a barbarian uh, king, 
to whom they had played regular Foros uh, tribute, and and they say Romaxos, you've got we've given you this tribute. You have to come and defend the city of Istros, and uh, Romaxos says, yeah, 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 okay, I'll send you a hundred cavalry. So they send a hundred cavalry, uh, but then the hundred cavalry aren't enough. In fact, they get scared, and the hundred cavalry run back across to across the Danube. So then Agathocles has to go back and said, Hey, Romaxos, you didn't listen enough the first time. You sent us a hundred, it's not enough. Send up six hundred cavalry. So yeah. So Fodmon, the son of Romaxos, says, Okay, okay, okay. Six hundred cavalry. So they send six hundred cavalry, and that is able to chase the uh, Thracians away. So you have this very peculiar thing. I mean the the I think the idea of the barbarian protector might be the the Barbarians were actually running the poles. It seems to be more complicated. It seems like the the poles had their own uh, policies, their own um, politics. They would pay a tribute to the biggest barbarian in the area. They the barbarians would then send uh, troops to protect them, but not all the time. You had to send diplomats to go and nag someone like Ramoxus. Said, "Hey, hey, hey, come on." Keep your promise. Send this stuff. Sometimes they would pay two groups of barbarians. In the case of Istros, they were paying both, paying off both Romaxos, and they were paying off the, off the Thracians. Uh, so it's it's very very complex. But actually, most of the time, the relationship between the Scythians and the Poles was one of alliance, and in fact, literal alliance. There are a number of cases where the Scythians and uh, the Greek poles on the Western Black Sea uh, join together to either oppose often, uh, I think they fight against Lysimachus together. Yeah, in 313. They became very natural allies because, you know, uh, Greek cities who actually became (laughs) very aggressive to Lysimachus you know, Lysimachus got this territory as a, his heritage from Alexander Empire. So they asked Thracian and Scythian to help them. And in that time, Scythian were natural allies with Pontic cities. And, uh, and also against the uh, Rome. Romans, there was, yeah. there, there, there was a, there's a Roman consul. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Gaius Antonius Hibrida. He was... He was consul in 63 BCE, along with Cicero. This was at the time of the Catalinarian uh, conspiracy. And if you remember the story of Cicero's consulate, there was Cicero, who, of course, we know from Cicero was a great guy. And there was Gaius Antonius, who was uh, totally no good. He was a total scuzzer. Um, anyway, Cicero didn't want a province. But uh, Gaius Antonius did, and he got Thrace, and he went out there and he stole as much as he could from Thrace. And having stolen from as much as he could from Thrace, he decided to move north into Moesia uh, and Dobrugia, the areas that we uh, talk about, and see if there was more stuff for him to steal. Well, at that point, the Greek Poles and the Scythians and the Pistarne, they all joined, who are another type of Barbarian. They all joined together, and they defeated Gaius Antonius Hibrida. And this is sixty-two, about sixty-two BCE. 
So here we have about 62 BCE, we have the Scythians still powerful enough to defeat a Roman, Empire, a Roman army, which very few people could at that time, which is pretty impressive. In fact, the Scythians were almost never defeated. The only exception is Philip, is Philip of Macedon, who defeats uh, Ateus. But uh, during Alexander's time, he sent a... Zapirion. Uh, Zapirion. Yeah, he sent a, a general of his, to attack Olbia, and the Scythians come to the defense of the Greek polis of Olbia, and they defeat Zopirion. Yeah. And Zopirion's troops run away, the ones that aren't killed. Uh, and in fact, we have a very interesting archaeological evidence of this. We have some of them were running away, and they finally get across the Dniester River to what is now Moldova. And as soon as they're across the river, they're able to sit down and rest a bit. And what they do, they're at of a town in what is now Moldova in Olenesh. And what they do is they have this armor, and they want to get rid of it so they can keep on running away even more quickly and get back to the Greek poles and save their lives. So what they... Now, you know from your Greek poetry and stuff like that is that it is a scandal for any Greek hoplite to abandon their shield or their armor that is a terrible thing to do. You know, you know that the Spartan mothers would give to their sons a shield and say, either you come back holding your shield or you come back dead on the shield. You're not going to throw your shield away. So, so it's terrible to abandon it. But these guys, they have this heavy armor. They want to get rid of it. Well, they take it all off and they bury it. But before they bury it, they dedicate it it to the goddess Artemis. And then it's okay. If you're dedicating your armor to a Greek god, then it's not shameful to throw your armor away. You are doing something good for the gods. So, so then it becomes nice and okay. So they bury it. And then in the 1960s, Soviet archaeologists found it. And it was, uh, they dug up all this wonderful Greek armor. And it is now in the, um, uh, in the museum in Moldova, Kishinev. in Kishinov, yeah, Kishinov, uh, in, in what is the capital of Moldova. So the, we have this wonderful uh, armor that, that, was, that was thrown away by the troops of uh, Zopirion. Uh, and the interesting thing about the, uh, the report that was published in uh, the Soviet Journal of Ancient History is that it uh, uh, is that it mentions this inscription to Artemis? So we have a, have an idea of how uh, how these Greek soldiers who were basically run away could figure out a proper Greek way of throwing your armor away, but not getting into trouble into trouble because you threw your armor away. Um, so may, maybe we should talk about the coins. Yes, we and the. Uh, <laughs> As we mentioned before, we know coins of the Scythian king Ateas, but also it's very interesting series which came to us uh, from Dionysopolis. It's anonymous coin. Actually, ANS has one of these wonderful examples. I also published this. And some some scholars believe that this is these coins believe 
belong to the time of Ateas, but some of them, and it's me, <laughs> believe that this is coin actually connected with this rebellion of Greek cities against Lysimachus. Because on that coin, it's anonymous coins without any uh, name of king, but on reverse of this coin, it's again image of Scythian riding to the left and doesn't matter, but on the same Scythian dress and very close to the image of coins which we can see on Ateas. But I believe that this is much later and it's probably belonged to the time of this revolt against Lysimachus. Uh, second, uh, you know, a lot of scholars believe that after Lysimachus drove the Scythians back across the Danube, that Scythian not anymore exist in Dobrudja, but it's not true, as I mentioned. They actually uh, stay, some of them, especially our agricultural tribe, they stayed in Dobrudja. And when next wave came, it became another, another polity after Ateas' death and Lysimachus' action. So Scythian continued to live in the Brugia and it became new polity. Uh, to that time, actually, belong coins which was tried to establish uh, chronology. John, if you want to talk about uh, Canidas, I believe. Yeah, well, well I mean, as, as, you, as people probably know, one of the things that happened was that uh, the Scythians weren't the only barbarians on the move. There were also, obviously, the the Celts, and uh, they sacked they sacked Rome in 390 BCE, and they sacked Delphi around 300. I don't know the exact date, but anyway, they were defeated around Delphi, and they then moved back north and established a kingdom, a Celtic kingdom. In Thrace. Yeah, Viscate, Viscate uh, and Tylus. Yeah, Tylus, T Y L I S. Tylus, whatever. And uh, there's a series of Celtic kings, and they were very, very powerful, of whom the last one was Cavarus. Um, the Celts were finally defeated and the Celtic uh, <clears throat> kingdom destroyed. And Cavarus, uh, Cavarus is killed, and we uh, there's a range of dates. That's why our book starts out with two one eight two twelve because there's some people say around two one eight, some people would say one two twelve. But uh, we basically think that once the Celtic kingdom was eliminated, there was then something of a power vacuum, and into this power vacuum. The Scythians, who were in Debruja, <coughs> could be, begin to establish their own kingdom, of which the first one, well, there's, we have coins, mostly in bronze. There's one uh, issue in silver, and they're issued by six kings, Canites, Tanusis, Haraspes, Aeolus, Sariakes, and Akrosas. And one of the great uh, sports of scholars who study, study this coinage 
is to try and figure out which order they come into. I say it's sort of like a Rubik's Cube. You try to fit them all together. And anyway, Elena and I worked on, on this together. At one point, what we did <clears throat> was I went to Elena's office and I cut out uh, six pieces of paper and I wrote all the names <laughs> on it. And we began to sort them out. And once we decided that two ruled in proximity to, uh, to each other, we would tape them together. So those were certain. And then as they got into uh, bigger and bigger blocks, we began to move the blocks around. So, uh, for example, Canites and Tenusis, we knew that they ruled together because there's a dialect. Yeah. And uh, also the uh, shared, uh, shared monogram, Bach, Beta Alpha Kappa. Kappa. <laughs> and there's also a shared... Uh, Countermarker. And then for Eilis and Sariakes, there's a uh, shared countermark. Two shared countermarks. And Karaspis and Elias share the same monogram. Yes, Mu and Epsilon. Yeah. So we can put those three together. Of course, then you have the question whether it goes Canitis Tenusis or Tenusis Canites. <laughs> and then you have the question whether it goes Haraspis, Eilis, Sariakes, or Sariakis, Haraspis, Eilis. Well, we decided that Kanitas must come first because, first of all, his coinage is very abundant. Yeah, it's a lot of varieties. A lot yes. of varieties. And we think that he, w you have these uh, various um, polities in the Balkans, and you would have uh, rulers that come in and are sort of um, that create these polities, but then they're killed, they're assassinated, <clears throat> and then usually the polities fall apart. Uh, so, for example, uh, you have people like the uh, uh, Dacian king, Edodeta uh, king, Burabista, and he was eventually. Uh, he was assassinated at the same time as Caesar was assassinated. But one of the things the Romans do was that Borobista was a big enemy and they were actually planning a campaign against him. Until then, he was assassinated. The whole thing falls apart. But you also had other uh, earlier things like Corm Cormontorius, who was a Celtic leader, or Cavaris, a Celtic leader, or um, uh, Ateus, of course, and Lysimachus. And then, of course, we think we have one of the people who is one of these charismatic leaders, Canites, and we think Canites was the charismatic leader who really started it. So it starts with Canites Tenusis. And then for the other block, uh, Haraspes and Sariakes, uh, if you look at the metrology, the weights, the weights get lower as you move from Haraspes to Sariakes and then from Sariakes from from Haraspis Silas Sariakes. So it then becomes Haraspis Ilis Sariakis. And then we ended up with a Krosas, who is sort of our floater. And we there's the problem of where he puts in. But there's a uh, a countermark uh, that he shares, which also appears on the coinage of Scylurus. And Scylurus was a Scythian king who became ruler of Olbia. If I have that right, is that correct? Yes, yes. Yes. So, uh, so a anyway, 
We do have a date for Skiluris. Uh, Nina Frolova, whom both Elena and I knew, yeah. who was Skiluris um, was... coins and yeah, 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 yeah. she yeah, she was. Uh, she was the numismatist in Moscow, very, very charming lady <laughs> and very, very smart. Uh, anyway, she did a study of Skiluris, and, and it's from her that we have a date for Skiluris. There's also a um, uh, a coin hoard of coins of... Which include coins of Akrasas and Lyse, post-Lysimicus gold coins. Yeah, 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 Lysimicus gold yes. coins. And... Constantine Marinescu is working on the great study of Lysimache. So whenever, which, and so, and when he publishes, we will be able to look at his book. But at the moment, we just go around, we ask Constantine, yeah. and he has given us a date of, I think, 160, maybe 140. So it's given us a date for, uh, for, for these coins, and that gives us a date for the hoard. Now, this hoard has been considered controversial because it's gold and bronze gold. Yes, and some of scholars believe that it's impossible to find it. Yes, yes. Uh, Demita Dragunov, the Bulgarian, has said uh, that doesn't exist. So I scuttled off and got my copy of Inventory of Greek Coin Hordes and sat down and read through it. Uh, and it's, uh, it's incredibly useful. And in it I found eight... Uh, gold and bronze hordes, and then going through, and then of course coin hordes. There's these volumes that have been issued afterwards that um, uh, that help update IGCH. Uh, there are eleven volumes of these, so I went through those volumes and I found some more, and eventually I ended up with eleven inst instances of uh, hordes of gold and bronze coins. So. It's clearly something that happens. It's not something that you can say is impossible. There's even another Thracian hoard in Thrace, found in Thrace, of uh, gold and bronze coin. I think from, it might be Preslov, uh, that uh, has has gold and bronze coins. So uh, the reason that was given for attacking this hoard uh, was not true. So we can use that. So that gives us a date for Akrosos. So Akrosos ends up being put at the end. Oh, also we have a date for Sariakes is someone for which we have a very good yeah, date. Yeah, this is very interesting because it came from some uh, inscription which was found on Cape Caliacra. John, if you want, you can say something. Yeah, well, it's an inscription that was found on Cape, off Cape Caliacra. Yeah, it was an altar inscription, a dedication Ooh. to uh, I think Dioscuris the... Dioscuris yeah. yeah, the Dioscuris, yeah. and it was the was dedicated by Antigonus of Stibera on behalf, oh. in honor of the king Sariakes. Yes. And the thing is that Antigonus of Stibera, he is mentioned in the, there. fortunately we have uh, Livy's, Livy's history, we have books of Livy, and they, and we, and for this period we actually have him they survive in their entirety. <clears throat> and he mentions this guy, Antigonus. Yeah. He doesn't say he's from Stibera. Yeah, 40 points, 57. But he mentions the guy, Antigonus, who's constantly going off and negotiating with the barbarians. Now, to the north of the Danube, there's a group of barbarians called the Bastarni. And we don't really know 
what they are, and they probably didn't know them. Well, of course, they didn't know themselves. Um, <laughs> but Livy says that they speak the same language as the Skordiski. Now, we know that the Skordiski spoke Celtic, so that seems to imply that the Bastarnae are Celts. However, we do have um, Tacitus, his Germania, he mentions the Bastarnae, and he says they're German. So, but of course, you know, the thing is that with these uh, barbarians, you would have people would just join these massive groups, and some people would speak, uh, we speak in Celtic, and some people would speak in German, and so we describe these people as Germans or Celts, but they were actually mixed up, very, you know, diverse. I mean, if you consider something like the Teutonian, the Kimbri, which are considered German barbarians, invaders of the of the Romans that Marius fought, uh, we describe them, they're just described in history as Germans. But if you look among them, they have names that end in Rix, which is a Celtic ending. So there may have, it's possible that you have a whole massive group of nomads and people say, hey, let's go and loot the wealthy Romans. And everybody says, good idea. And you may have a core of Germans, but then the Celts join in as well. So the Bastarnae are one of these things there. We don't know whether the Celts are Germans, but they're just barbarians who are, who are running around. It doesn't matter for us because we need to return back to Antigonus' mission. Yeah, so Antigonus is basically going negotiating with the Bastarnae and Perseus is at Philip and then his successor Perseus are about to uh, get into a battle with Roman, the Romans and they say, hey, wouldn't it be great if you Bastarnae began moving against the Romans. So they keep on trying to negotiate with them. But unfortunately, Philip and Perseus are total cheapos, and they never pay the Bastarnae enough. Bastarnae say, "You, if you don't pay us any money, we're just going to uh, leave and go back. And eventually they don't get paid the money by those cheapos, and they go back across the Danube. Uh, but anyway, because of all these negotiations, we have a lot about Antigonus, who seems to have been bopping around uh, this barbarian area, negotiating with the uh, barbarians. And the other thing is that Livy tells us is that Antigonus was one of the purpurati. These were people who wore purple cloaks, who were the aristocracy of the Macedonian kingdom. And after the Romans come along and defeat uh, the Macedonians, they then deport all the purpurati, all the aristocrats, to Rome, so they won't, so they won't, so they won't cause any more trouble. And so this is about 167 BCE. So we know that Antigonus, because he is purpuratus, must have been deported. So he's not going to be bopping around the Balkans after 167. So the point at which he must have met Sariakes would have been before 167. So we now have a terminus. Antequem, so we know that Sariakis must have been ruling in 167 BCE or sometime I, before. I think, yeah, they actually established some time frame for Sariakis, 180, 160 BCE. Yeah, and this is very important that we have some historical and epigraphical evidence. And another uh, epigraphical uh, actually evidence we have for King uh, Canitas, John, I think it's very important because some people believe maybe, why you decided that Canitus is Scythian king? Why? Maybe it's Celtic. But that decree which was found in Odysseus actually mentioned 
Canitus as a Scythian king? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, uh, it's an interesting inscription. Uh, it may or may not survive in part. <laughs> may not. Uh, the thing is that it was recorded by a Dutchman mm -hmm. who fell in love with ancient, ancient world, and he went. He said, "I want to go see all this stuff for myself." So he traveled to Constantinople. Constantinople, yes. And uh, Georgius Dusa. And then he eventually published his, his account <clears throat> of his trip to Constantinople in 1590. And in it, he has this inscription that he copied out. Now, the inscription itself, uh, the, it hasn't been found. However, in the 1880s, someone found a piece that seems to be the bottom part of the inscription. Uh, the problem is that the terms that they would use in these inscriptions were so standardized that they that this piece may be part of the standard verbiage and may actually refer to another inscription. Uh, so Mikhailov, when he published his inscriptions of Bulgaria, he decided that the inscription that we have, the rock that we have, the final piece, was not part of the Deuce inscription. So he assigned two different numbers to it. But uh, some people, Mordman, thought that they were part of the same inscription, and they may well be. But if, in any case, uh, Papiti actually saw the rock that is in the collection Sophia, the, inscri the inscription, and Papiti was a Romanian scholar who studied epigraphy, and he looked at the uh, letter forms, and he knew a lot about inscriptions. He published a lot about it. And he said, I have not the least hesitation to say that this inscription with these letter forms is from the second century. So we're talking about the 100s. Uh, so that gives us a date for that inscription. Uh, but the other, but the important thing about it, as Lena says, is that he says he's, I think, Basileo Scuthon, king of the Scythians. So it actually says he is a Scythian. There are other ways people have tried to uh, say that they're Scythians. They've looked at the names and said that this is evidence of the Scythian language. But as we know, the uh, modern scholars who have looked into Scythian language have become more and more doubtful that we can figure anything out about yeah. it. So, although... Like, tar like Tarasuk, uh, you remember this? Yeah, 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 Tarasuk. Yeah. Uh, Tarasuk was... He actually had an interesting life. He was a um, Soviet um, Soviet scholar, archaeologist, but then he said something uh, rude and he ended up the gulag. And then he was released and he started off all again and he got into a fairly good position in the Hermitage, but he was uh, Jewish, and then he decided he wanted to emigrate to Israel. So he was fired. He was one of the first refuseniks, and he didn't have a job. He finally got out to Israel, uh, and, but then he came to the United States, and he uh, worked his way up into a position at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and did very well. Uh, then, and his wife also got a position at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Then 
the Met sent him and his wife to Europe on a to a conference, and they went on a special vacation to Brittany. And so now, at last, after having this time of being being in the Gulag in the Soviet Union and being a refusenik, he now has a job in America, and he's traveling with his wife into on the beautiful roads of rural France. At which point, in the beautiful roads of rural France, the two of them die in a car crash, which is so. It's a very sort of a very sad. It's one of those ironic things. It would Herodotus would have loved a story. Like <laughs> okay,、that. let's return back. <laughs> so,、um, so we're 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 coming up、uh, on the hour, and I wanted to switch the conversation from you know being fascinated by the Scythians to. Um, your own collaboration, and、oh. and I was I was curious, you know, as to how long have you two known each other, and why did you decide decide to team up on this particular volume?、Uh, when, did you, when did you start the ANS?、Uh, I started in 1994, and from first step, it's pro- approximately 30 years ago. Yeah, next year will be. And from first step, I got very close, very kind. Friend, and I'm really appreciate everything what John did to me because it's not easy to come to another country. You know, I was born in Odessa and was curator in Odessa Archaeological Museum, one of the oldest museum in the Russian Empire and Soviet Union. Odessa Museum Archaeological was founded in 1825. So when I came to United States, I worked first in Pennsylvania University Archaeological Museum, and later in 1994 joined very professional staff of the American Numismatic Society. And John became my close friend, and I really appreciate everything what he did to me. And with me, because every time when I try to do some research, I、uh, actually spoke with John about this, and he gave me some good advice, and he he showed attention to everything what I try to do, and it was very very important for me, you know, because immigration it's not tourism, <laughs> it's difficult, <laughs> and、uh, yeah, it's how we came very close friend and discuss. A lot of things of ancient history of everything. What I believe I want to study in NS in NS wonderful collection. And first, I published some stuff about、uh, Vesporian kingdom, and later. No, you start with you start with yeah, that's right. Hugi Hugi Heidel, the yeah, Archon,、yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah,、um, yeah. The things that when Elena came here,、uh, one of the things that she did was, which I think was great, was she.、Uh, Decided to publish scholarship, and she has a profound knowledge of the of this、uh, Soviet and Russian and Ukrainian scholarship, which、uh, in America we don't know.、Uh, and I actually think that the I keep on thinking that the part of the book that people are going to、uh, appreciate the most is going to be the bibliography. Because if you look through the bibliography, we listed all these.、Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of papers that are published in collective publications, and then they're edited. And if you go through that bibliography between people who've published papers and people who are editing the papers, you will probably find the names of、uh, a very large number of all the important、uh, workers in this field. 
in uh, the USSR, in the Russian Federation, in Ukraine, uh, in Romania, in Bulgaria. Um, and I think that the listing of just all these Soviet and post-Soviet scholars is going to be, in many ways, the most useful thing. So she had all this knowledge, and she started publishing right away. Um, first with the thing on Hugyanon, and then on uh, uh, the King's Parisades, their coinage. And then I really, anyway, I would work with her and sort of polish up the English. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my. And then... Uh, it's my broken English and uh, John's, as I call, Shakespearean language. <laughs> well, yeah, something called Shakespearean, but sometimes you call it uh, my telegraph yeah, style. Because I, believe <laughs> exactly. in, because I believe in short sentences. Yes, telegraph I'm a very good... And whereas in, uh, in Soviet prose... And in German prose, they like long, long periods with subordinate clauses, whereas I believe in doing everything in very, very short sentences that anybody can understand. Yes, in, in, in my language, it's uh, exactly some cliche from Russian or from German. When, when you start uh, sentences and after that going to the back, you forgot what you start, of, you know, of <laughs> what it's actually all about you start, you know. This is how it's uh, work in Russian linguistic. Yeah, and... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, I say we like short sentences, yeah. and I said... Yeah, uh, this is Hemingway. It's supposed to go back to Hemingway because he was the great advocate of short sentences that people began to make fun of it. But anyway, I'm a great believer in short sentences too. Uh, so, But then I would have been very happy if she had gone on doing more about the Bosporan Kingdom because I find the Bosporan Kingdom absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah. But she decided to shift to the Scythians and she did the paper about Ateas. And the Ateas paper has been had a lot of influence it's got cited in the Encyclopedia Ironica, and every time people talk about Ateas, boom, boom, there's a footnote to Stoyaric. So that one was very good. And then she decided to get into uh, the uh, bronze coinage of Scythia Minor. Uh, she, did, she did a first paper on the chronology at the Glasgow conference in 2009, and I was always telling her, you know, come on, publish a paper, publish an <laughs> yeah. article, because I'm a great believer that you publish a small part because you could always fall off a subway platform tomorrow and die. So publish the <laughs> small piece first <laughs> and don't publish the big piece. <laughs> come on. So, yeah. But the result was that she kept on and doing the big piece. Uh, eventually what happened was I got assigned metrology. I said, you got to do metrology on the weights. Yeah, and you know, and, and you know why he did wonderful job on metrology because I believe because he was graduated from Stuyvesant School in New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Stuyvesant High School. So, so I'm not, which is of course famous for uh, yeah. its math and science technique. Math. Yeah, Marinescu went went there. Uh, actually, someone who's very famous in the Russian Federation today. He has a sort of nationalist TV uh, program. Posner, who was, who was an international spy, but when he was a kid, he spent some time in New York City and went to Stuyvesant High School. So we have a uh, famous graduate of Stuyvesant High School who's actually a Russian spy. Yeah, and, jo and John Kleberg. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. As me. Well, there's, well, there's lots of uh, uh, people who are... Uh, Eric Lander went to... Uh, he, was in, he was a class ahead of me at Yale. Uh, not Yale, it's Stuyvesant. Yeah. Okay, return uh, back. Let's return back. So, so, so things I... Things I, I I know, I know math. Yeah. 
So I so I did the metrology chapter, and then Elaine was stuck on other things. So I I did the uh, uh, I did the iconography and the legends and filled in stuff like that, and then sort of and then sort of rewrote uh, a lot of the stuff. Marin Constantine Marinescu says he can tell when it shifts from me to Elena and from Elena to me. He he knows us both very well and can tell if there's a lot of citation of German scholars, it's probably me, and a lot of citations of Soviet and Russian and Ukrainian scholars. And Bulgarian. And Bulgarian. Bulgarian, Romanian, yeah, yeah, and stuff yes. like that. Um, it also helped the fact that I I learned Russian. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, with my own work. Yeah. Uh, with my own work, we do a lot of work with, uh, uh, I work for the Jewish organization and most uh, Jews now are from the former Soviet Union. So if you work for a Jewish organization, you have to learn Russian. So I learned Russian okay. and Bulgarian is very, very close to Russian. So once you've learned Russian, you know Bulgarian And too. what is really was very helpful that I have very good connection with Bulgarian and Romanian scholars who sent me some uh, articles which you never will find <laughs> here in the United States and some mo monograph like Tachev and uh, Yanislav Tachev and Talmachi. It was very helpful, uh, you know, to have all these people around. And also I believe that this is good that we... Wait a little bit. Even John pushed me to, to do this, to do this. But we could collect it, some more numismatic data, you know, which gave us possibility to do our research and to came to our conclusion because it became very variable material. Yes. Uh, well, in fact, the, the, these coins are actually quite rare. Yes. And Edward Theodore Newell, who gave his huge collection to the American Indian Society. Yeah, even was the yeah. great, the, the, the great collector of, uh, of Greek coins. He didn't own a single Scythian coin. And the British Museum, they had nine, nine Scythian yeah. coins. That's Which all. Which they published. Uh, yeah, and they are still a And, uh, and there were the earlier scholars who wrote on this, who did actually quite good jobs, like the Romanian Kanaraki and the... Bulgarian... Glasimov. Uh, they had only yeah. about... Uh, Gerasimov worked with Karaskowski. Yeah. They had only about 70 things. And Andru, who also did a very good yeah. job, um, she's Ukrainian. She wrote, um, she had about, she had 96. But um, as people know, since the fall of the wall, and, uh, uh, people have been finding more and more coins in Eastern Europe, especially in Bulgaria. And the result was that when Draganov published, he had about 1,000. Yeah. And when we published, we have fifteen hundred, yeah. more than fifteen hundred. Yeah, we increased this so, yeah, on fifty percent. Yeah, so so it's, so increased by fifty yeah. percent. So we have much more for uh, the study of this. And another thing that I think was great. Well, she did the chronology in two thousand nine, and then she, then for Sicily, she began to work on uh, circulation pattern and the coin finds. And began to track down the fine spots, um, and she went off. and She has communications with; she knows everybody. Elaine knows everybody in Eastern Europe, <laughs> Not, especially Odessa. Yes, especially Odessa. I mean, I mean, if you ask someone about her, about someone, some archaeologist in Odessa, she says, "You ask her for." I would ask her for the patronymic. I say, "What's her?" 
patronymic. She said, oh, it's such and such, you know, Ivanovna or whatever it is. Uh, in fact, you can get her on the telephone, but don't uh, call her right now because she, I see she's just going out to do some shopping, but she'll be back <laughs> about 15 minutes. I mean, I think that Elena has uh, drones outside the apartments of all these people. She knows <laughs> where they are and all that, that, that. And she can tell you everything about them. She clearly has you know, files and documents about Come everybody. on, I'm, I'm not uh, KGB, I don't have <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, but, but she has amazing knowledge. But also she has contacts with everybody. And she would say, you know, well, uh, what was found here? What was found here? Do you know this? Do you know that? And she doesn't give up. Yeah, yeah. When she wants an answer, she will nag you until she gets that answer. <laughs> so all these poor people in Eastern Europe were getting these things from Elena said, you said the coin was found. You know, we have a report from Kanaraki that said it was found in, um, in Romania. But is it possible it was actually found? You know, further south and what is now oh, Bulgaria. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So she would, you know, nag them and we get there. We actually find uh, and determines the fine spots. So this whole thing was the whole thing about the fine spots is incredible, it is extraordinary. Um, and then Elena and I were discussing about the myth. Yes, it's. And we had big arguments. Yes. We had very, very big arguments about this. But every time she would argue with me and said, it might be Calatus, it might be Thomas, it might be that, I would say, hey, look, I have this very good examination of the fine spots, which was done by this very good scholar called Elena Stoyark. I don't know if you've heard her name, but she's very good. And she's done this wonderful stuff on fine spots. And in fact, she did her doctorate on fine spots of Byzantine coins in Ukraine. So she already was trained to do all this stuff. <laughs> she knows how to yeah, do it. He, Elena yeah. knows the fine spots. And if you look at the fine spots, all this stuff is found mm -hmm. much closer to Dionysopolis yeah. and was found to Colatus. Yeah. So it cannot be done at Colatus. So I would argue this again. And she would say, but I mean, you look at the style and you look at this picture John, of, yeah. uh, of Athena yeah. and it could be like that. Elena keeps on talking about iconography yeah. and style. John, which do I John doesn't like iconography. <laughs> he doesn't like, you know, simple for iconography. He believes that it can be the same iconography in different places. But I I, I really insist that counter stamps, which really, you know, counter mark, counter stamps, as matter, uh, which really uh, show style, very close style to some coins issued in that city, like Tommy Kalati sisters, they definitely rarely struck, not restruck, they just put counter stamp on these coins in that Greek policies. It's exactly, it was very important, yeah. But well, well, well she, she did, yeah. She, so she did a wonderful thing on the fine spots. Then she did a wonderful thing on the countermarks, because she was able to. She, uh, her eyesight isn't that great, but she was able to enlarge it really big on her phone. Yes, my, yeah. So she was able to look at the <laughs> countermarks very, very closely, <laughs> and match them up. Yeah. And there's anyway, it, the key, and, and and they a very common countermark is the countermark of Hermes. Yes. Because Hermes is the god of markets, so they so they love to put Hermes countermarks on. Anyway, she divided up Hermes into five different styles, <laughs> yes. which is very important. And she was it was able to describe that. So we were able to put all these things together: the fine spots, and the countermarks, and the metrology, uh, and that then is able to put the kings in order, and it tells us a lot about 
how it was. We, we also have a thing where it seems a lot of the coins of, uh, this was an idea that I came up, which I thought was crazy, but I argued out with Elena, and we decided it wasn't so crazy, so we put it in. That a lot of the coins of Canites were not struck in his lifetime, but were struck afterwards, the posthumous Canites, and they are put in between the rain, uh, and we do, are able to date this partly by countermarks, yes. in between the rain of Sariakes yes. and the rain Acrosus. of us. And, that, and that solves a lot of problems that we wouldn't have been able to solve otherwise. So that was something that we added uh, well. But anyway, the, the stuff that she did on the countermarks was wonderful. And then she divided them into five countermarks. And there's one, the first countermark was, has sort of a, the Pitassos, by the shape of the Pitassos. First found the countermark is very globular. And I originally said, it looks as though Hermes had cut a watermelon in half and put it on top of his head. <laughs> you, so I wanted to call it. The, I wanted to call it the watermelon. You, 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 said, can, you can imagine how I should react to this. It was unbelievable. I said watermelon. Come on, after my dead body. <laughs> so it ended up being the demi-globe potassiums, but I. Yeah. 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 But, but, but we had uh, nicknames for all the potassoi. Yeah. And they're divided up, and it's like, uh, like it was French big... beret or driving cup, something like this. Uh... Yeah, and that and that's very important because in many cases, uh, the Athena uh, countermarks. It seems as though they're picking out the heavy coins, mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, not countermarking the uh, the low weight coins because there's a drop. I think this is Ilus or Sariakis, one or the other. Uh, there, there's Actually, one... both Iris and Syriacus, Athena's. Yeah, but 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 I I don't know where yeah, they're first. where they're picking out the uh, picking out the heavyweight ones. But anyway, you have to know once you know the once you know the metrology, you know what's going on with the Athena countermark. So it became kind of hard to write the article, be write the uh, book, because you're talking about the chapter about weights, and yeah, we will have to refer ahead to the countermark chapter. Or you were talking in the countermark chapter, and you have to refer back to the uh, uh, metrology chapter. So they're all sort of integrated. But uh, eventually, we all put it together and wrote it. We went through very a whole bunch of revisions, revisions yeah. and uh, that's pretty much it. But as Marinescu says, he can tell when there's a shifting of gears when it goes from. I mean, mine. When I write, I talk about. Ovid, and I talk about how there's all these different people in the Black Sea, and you know, they're all getting along and stuff like that. And so, like, and then you go to the next chapter, and crunch, 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 and there's a shifting of gears. And he says, All right, first, there's the Barabadag culture, and we can divide it into four different cultures. And there's this evidence of the uh, archaeology, and there's yeah. this thing that's published by Semyon, and there, but it's been disputed by this other scholar, and this like that. And when you get to that section, you see, you sort of have a sense like, comrades, <laughs> playtime is over, everything is serious, we are going to get into the very serious archaeological things. Yeah. And that's all I am. Yeah, yeah, because I'm, I am archaeologist, you know, I excavated in Greek colonies on the North Black Sea in, in yeah, you're actually a dirt archaeologist. You you dug up the 
uh, the Sea of Tiras. Tiras is my favorite. Yes, yeah. yeah, but to conclude all this, because I think uh, Andrew tired from us. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. So uh, I want to say my very, very great appreciation to my colleague, my co-author, and my very close friend John for his support for what he through all these years pushed me to publish and yeah and i believe that we are great team it's my opinion and i hope that everyone who will read our book will see this uh, because we put not only our time but our heart to everything what we published yeah i, I, I well i think that we're we're very lucky to have had elena because she has this profound knowledge of all this uh, Soviet and uh, Russian and Ukrainian and Bulgarian and Romanian scholarship, which really is not known in the West as it should be, uh, partly because people in the West don't know the languages. Uh, Rostovsev used to complain about yeah. this. He used to say, Rosika non legontor. <laughs> people just don't read things in Russian. And uh, I think it's Berbel Babler. I She's a German scholar. She writes about uh, civilians. She gave a paper at a conference in Göttingen about, which was talking about um, Fanagoria. Yeah. And she gave a lecture, and uh, it's a lecture in German. And she just goes, she just had a fit talking about Western scholars publishing about civilians who don't read Russian. She said, if you're going to write about the Scythians, you have to read the Russian scholarship. And it is shameful to. She was specifically talking about Francois de Hartog, his mirror of Herodotus, who basically makes up a whole bunch of stuff about the Scythians. And she was furious about that and furious about people who didn't know the literature. Well, the great thing about this book, a great thing about Lena, is she has made a lot of the scholarship and literature available to us in English. Yes, in my English, <laughs> let's say. No, it's been yeah, polished. And, it's and been polished. And... Shakespearean English and Telegraph. <laughs> Hemingway, Hemingway, <laughs> the Telegraph okay. style. It's been polished into the Telegraph okay. style. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and also, we have this wonderful bibliography so that people can look at that. And we have the bibliography in every place where there was a title in Bulgarian or Romanian or Russian or Ukrainian, it got translated into English. Yes, actually, we, we use nine different languages in this book. Yeah, it's something yeah, like this. Yeah, probably, yeah, probably, yeah. probably even more. Yeah, yeah. maybe more, yeah. Um, and also, you know, I want to tell you that some ancient Greek text or Latin text, John translated he, he liked this to, to do and i'm really appreciate him when he polished this translation too you know yeah what i would do was i would take a i would take the inscription and i would do it on a saturday morning i would take my copy of liddell scott and jones which is a very heavy book so i had to put it out on my bed and i would sort of lie on the bed and keep on looking up all the stuff in liddell scott and jones and very carefully try to translate the inscription. So the book also contains the three major inscriptions with English translations of them. So, so what I want to conclude that it was very, very, you know, important for us job and we enjoy this and we hope that you enjoy it 
what we did. Well, and we know that must have been very, very difficult to edit with all the languages yeah. and everything like that. Uh, and we're very much appreciative yeah. that all the work has been put into it. And we've seen the book as it's going to look. Mm -hmm. And it's going to knock people's eye out because it has <laughs> wonderful stuff. And yeah. we have some very, very nice illustrations, not just coins, but also vases. Yeah. And yeah. well, Tori, Tori, you takes like you never pronounce it correctly. Metalwork. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Yeah. Because the Scythian stuff is terrific. Terrific. <laughs> Let's yeah. say. Something like yeah. that. Yeah, something like that. And, well, and we uh, want um, to thank Andrew. First of all, yeah, he was also us. Our supporter, our helper, and we want to thank you, Andrew, very much for your work. Yes, thank you very much. Oh, no, you're quite welcome. It was my pleasure. Um, and uh, thanks to you both for writing what will become an instant classic. And uh, you know, we do appreciate it, and we look forward to sharing it with everyone in uh, September. So yep. thank you very much for an, a lively conversation. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> learned a lot. I know our listeners will have learned a lot as well. And it's obvious to uh, to understand your friendship listening to you both. <laughs> yeah. So thanks thank again. You. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you.